In the 2008 Summer Olympics, you've been enjoying the Winter Olympics, back in the Summer Olympics in Beijing, Michael Phelps proved that he was the most prolific swimmer of all time, as well as one of the great finishers. Phelps set the world record in that race for the 100-meter butterfly, becoming the first person to break 50 seconds in the race. The gold medal time was 49.85 seconds. And yet, in the same race, a Serbian swimmer named Milorad Kavic also swam a sub-50-second butterfly. His second place time was 49.95 seconds, a mere one-one-hundredth of a second behind Michael Phelps. Well, here's how it happened. As the leaders were approaching the finish line, Phelps surged ahead of Kavic. He had been trailing. He had been second in second place, but as they came close to the finish line, both men were caught between strokes, and so they both had to do a partial stroke. Kovic chose to glide through that half stroke, while Phelps took an extra short stroke and drove hard into the wall. Well, it was Phelps' lunge, it was his extra effort that caused him to surge ahead narrowly beating the Serbian. And it was an example not just of Phelps' unparalleled skill, but of his extraordinary determination. He drove hard to the end. When he needed it the most, he was able to dig deep down inside and find a little something extra to finish well. And this is what Jesus did. For Jesus is the greatest finisher of all time. For three and a half years, he ran his race faithfully. But in the final hours, when the forces of hell all rallied against him to keep him off the cross, Jesus found an extra kick, an extra lunge. He drove hard to the end, and he left nothing undone. We read it last week, John 17, verse 14. Jesus prayed to his Father in heaven, and he said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. He had finished. In next week's chapters, we're going to hear his final words that echo through the ages. It is finished. Jesus was a great finisher. And this is encouraging for you and me because he's still a great finisher. Jesus always finishes what he starts. And that includes your salvation and my salvation. For Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in us will complete it. What Jesus starts, he finishes. He always has a perfect follow-through. As John stated it so well back in chapter 13, Jesus loved his disciples to the end. Well, here in John chapter 18, we begin reading. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, we're going to start tonight with a little geography lesson. I think this is going to put up a little map of ancient Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the combination of five different hills or mountains separated by three different valleys. To the north, up here, 
is what we call Mount Scopus. It's the northernmost mountain there in Jerusalem. On the west side of the city, you have Mount Zion here. South of the city, you have Mount Ophel. East of the city is the Mount of Olives. And then you finally, you have the Temple Mount, which is right here, which is Mount Moriah, which actually flows all the way back up, up this direction. This is all Mount Moriah right here. So you have five mountains, Mount Zion, Mount Ophel, Mount Moriah, I mean Mount Olives, Mount Moriah, and Mount Scopus. Now these five mountains, they're separated by three valleys. On the far west side, on the uh, west side of, of the Mount Zion, you have the Valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna as it's called. Right to the west side of the Temple Mount, this is the valley, the Triopian Valley. It's what it's called, the Triopian Valley. It's also called the Valley of the Cheesemakers. And then over here on the east side of the Temple Mount, you have the Valley of Jehoshaphat, or the Kidron Valley. This was where the Kidron Brook ran, right down this direction. And of course, the three valleys all came together at a point down here and then flowed down to the Dead Sea. A little geography lesson. Here's an overview of Jesus' movements that last night. Jesus and his disciples, they ate the Passover in the upper room here on Mount Zion. This is where it all started. After the, the Passover had taken place, after they had eaten the Last Supper, he then walked east, and he walked across either, either down uh, over the Mount Ophel, or he probably cut right here along the Temple Mount, and he came over here to a little garden, right over here on the bottom slope of the eastern slope of the, uh, I'm sorry, the western slope now of the Mount of Olives, a little garden there called the Garden of Gethsemane. With me? Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the first place he was taken is he was taken back to Caiaphas's house, which was back up here near the upper room on Mount Zion. After he was tried by Caiaphas and Annas, the two high priests, and then by the Sanhedrin, then at that point he was taken to Pilate. Pilate was in this tower, in this Roman fortress, right over here on the Temple Mount. And so he was taken from Mount Zion, he was taken over here to the fortress of Antonio, where he was tried by Pilate. You remember, Pilate tried to pass the buck. Pilate sent him where? To Herod, to Herod's palace, which meant that they walked back up here to the palace of Herod here, back to Mount Zion. Herod, he didn't know what to do with Jesus, and so he sent him back to Pilate. So he goes back to the fortress of Antonio. From there, he's scourged, and then he's, uh, a, a piece of wood is laid on his shoulders, and he's made to walk outside of the city to a place called Calvary. And he went this direction right here, out the ancient gate, to this little area right here, which we know as Mount Calvary where Jesus was crucified. Everybody with me? Those are his movements that night. Understand the whole old city of Jerusalem is actually less than one square mile. There's a psalm, Psalm 122, verse 3, that tells us Jerusalem is built 
as a city that is compact together. Jerusalem is a tight squeeze. It's a cramped city. And whenever we take our tours, we stop on top of the Mount of Olives. And we actually look out over the city, and I sort of chart the path that Jesus traveled that that night just before he was crucified. Here it is again from another side. We're we're up on top of the Mount of Olives here. Everybody know where we are in relationship to that previous map? Okay, here's Mount Zion up here. Here's Mount Ophel down here. Here's the Temple Mount right across here. This valley here is what? The Kidron Valley, right? Mount Scopus is up here. And so, again, the upper room was here. They left the upper room. They came across to the Garden of Gethsemane right here. He was arrested. He was taken to Caiaphas' house. From Caiaphas' house, he was taken to the fortress of Antonio, which would have been right in there. For Pilate, Pilate sent him back to Herod. Herod sent him back to Pilate. And then he was taken to a place right up in here, uh, right up in here where he was crucified. All right? Once you see it, and it's really kind of cool to go to the Mount of Olives and stand on top of the Mount of Olives and have all this pointed out to you because for, for a lot of people, it clicks. You know, when you see it, the light comes on. I remember before I went to Jerusalem, I always wondered, how did they get all that movement in in one night in such a short time? You've got to understand, it's a tight city. It's, it's compressed. It's compacted, as the psalmist says. And so you're able to move about, and, and these things all fell into place in a very short time span. Well, verse 1 tells us that Jesus and his men, they came out of the upper room, and they crossed the brook Kidron. Now, it's only a brook in the rainy season. The rest of the year, it's a dry, dusty ditch. And yet, this brook in the valley had some symbolic significance. You remember when David, King David, was betrayed by his son Absalom and by his best friend and counselor, Ahithophel. David evacuated the city of Jerusalem, crossing the brook Kidron. It's interesting that both Ahithophel and Absalom ended up dying dangling from a tree. Absalom's hair got caught in its limbs, remember? Whereas Ahithophel committed suicide and hung himself. Do you think this story was being replayed in Jesus' mind? The son of David, as he made that same journey across the brook Kidron. Jesus was also rejected by the nation. He too was betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas. And it's more than ironic that Judas, like Ahithophel, ended his life by hanging himself from a tree. The word Kidron means dark, gloomy, shadowy. The brook was always polluted with runoff from the temple sacrifices. Usually, its waters usually carried the blood of the lambs and goats that were being sacrificed there. Imagine Jesus that night. He's crossing this dark, blood-stained brook. I'm sure it reminded him both of his betrayal and of the sacrifice that lay just ahead. Well, verse 1 tells us that Jesus went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden. And today, and and perhaps even more so in the first century, the Mount of Olives is adorned with trees. Here's a riddle for you. It's kind of, it's not as good as the pilgrim jokes, but but it's it's a riddle for you. It's kind of like who's buried in Grant's tomb. You ever heard that one? Or when was the War of 1812 fought? 
It's sort of like those. What type of trees cover the Mount of Olives? Olive trees, you guessed it. In fact, there's actually a garden there just above the valley that contains a grove of olive trees. It once had a press there that squeezed the olives for their oil. It was called Gethsemane. And the word means oil press or place of crushing. You know, olive oil production in ancient Israel was a threefold process. The initial crushing produced the purest oil, the virgin olive oil. The olives were squeezed under the weight of a huge millstone. And the liquid runoff, the oil that was collected, was then used to fuel the flame of the menorah, or it was used as holy anointing oil. The olive skins, though, that were left, they were made into a paste that was gathered up and it was kind of stretched out over some burlap. And then the paste was then crushed again. The oil that was released this time in this second crushing became a lubricant and was used for healing. Finally, the the leftover pulp, what was left, was used as a lye soap. It was for cleansing. And and in that picture of the olive, in the crushing of the olive, we have an incredible picture of Jesus' final hours. In Gethsemane, Jesus acted as our anointed high priest. He interceded for us. He prayed for our unity. There you have the purest oil, the virgin olive oil that was poured out when Jesus poured himself out in the garden. Then at Gabbatha, at Pilate's pavement, Jesus was scourged. And we learn from Isaiah that by his stripes we are healed. The Romans turned Jesus' back and body into pulp. And his suffering then became our healing. Finally, the leftover pulp, if you will, was taken to Golgotha where Jesus was crucified for our cleansing. Now he washes away the dirtiest dirt and the grimiest grime. And so there you have it, the squeezing of the olive, the olives at Gethsemane, at Gabbatha, at Golgotha. And it's also interesting that in the garden, cognizant of what the future held, Jesus prayed how many times? He prayed three times. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Well, verse 2 tells us, And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. This garden was a familiar hangout for Jesus and his men. Whenever they were in Jerusalem, this was one of the places that they enjoyed going. In fact, when you walk down the Palm Sunday Road, the Garden of Gethsemane is actually on both sides of the street. To the south, there's a church. And in the courtyard of the church, you'll find 2,000 year-old olive trees. These are the very same trees under which Jesus may have prayed. When we go there, we actually visit them and take pictures of them. It's incredible to be there. But north of the road, there's a private garden. In fact, you can slip the gate attendant a few shekels, and he'll allow your group to go in and have a time of prayer and a time of solitude. And to me, this garden is the holy ground. Imagine praying in the very place where Jesus began to be crushed and squeezed for you and me. It's one of my favorite places as well. Judas also knew about this place. He figured that this was where Jesus and his disciples were camping for the night. And so Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns 
torches, and weapons. It came with a detachment. The word detachment is the equivalent of the Latin word spira, which referred to a Roman military division. A spira numbered between 200 and 600 troops. This posse seemed to be a combination of Roman soldiers, some temple officials, and some Levitical police, temple police. And notice they come armed. I find this to be amazing. They come armed. They have weapons, no less. I mean, what are they afraid of? Judas is spearheading 200 spear-handed soldiers. Are they so fearful of one Galilean preacher and 11 fishermen turned disciples? Well, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him. And what a fascinating insight here. Nothing that happened that night caught Jesus by surprise. He knew all that would come upon him. In fact, he was in control throughout this whole ordeal. Here he went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And this was a move to defend his disciples. He didn't want them hassled or them arrested. He knows that the issues that this posse have, that they're with him. And so he sort of keeps the focus on himself here. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Then when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now here's a miracle that only John, of the gospel writers, only John records. The power of Jesus' presence bowled them over. Here were armed guards, and yet they were bowled over by the presence, by the glory of Jesus. They were literally floored, you might say. They fell to the ground. And notice the phrase that Jesus uses to address them. He says, I am He. Another I am statement. This was a claim to deity. These were the words that Yahweh spoke from the burning bush when He identified Himself to Moses. He said, I am that I am. And Jesus is taking these very same words, this very same name, and is applying it to Himself. For Jesus to use the same name that night, it was sort of the equivalent of shooting them with a supernatural stun gun. When he said, I am he, wow, bam! And it just bowled them right over it, knocked them on their backs. And let me say, the force of Jesus' presence still has flooring effects at times. You know, throughout Scripture, when people come in contact with God, they tend to hit the deck. Have you noticed this? And yet there's an important distinction. An unbeliever, when when faced with the presence of God, always falls backwards. But a believer always falls forward on their face. With an unbeliever, God has to bend a stiff neck. He has to break a stubborn backbone. While a believer, he, he lays forward. He bows to his knees. And he falls on his face in submission. You know, don't fall for what a lot of charismatic groups refer to as, quote, being slain in the spirit. You know, the evangelist, he sort of woos you into sort of a trance-like numbing. And then he slaps your forehead, you know. And you tumble backwards into the arms of the catchers. 
People who advocate this practice use this verse as a proof text for the phenomena, but this event and their event are two totally different experiences. This was something supernatural that was worked on these unbelievers who came to try to arrest Jesus. Verse 7, Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And I guess as they picked themselves up off the ground, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. And again, what seems to be Jesus' top priority here is the care of his disciples. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be tried. He's about to be tortured. He's going to be crucified. But notice, his number one concern is the safety of his men. It's amazing. Well, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and he struck the high priest's servant and he cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Oh, Peter was brave, but he was impulsive. And here he was trying to protect Jesus, while Jesus, by the way, was trying to protect Peter. You know, you'll save yourself some great heartache if you remember that Jesus doesn't need you to protect him or to defend him. Did you know that Jesus is a big boy? That he can protect himself? That he doesn't really need us? Jesus can take care of himself. He had this situation under control. Peter was the one who was out of control. Perhaps Malchus was the first one to reach out and lay a hand on Jesus. And when Peter saw it, he jumped up. And in an impulsive rage, he grabbed his sword and he went to slice the guy's head right in half. And when he did, he moved at the last second and Peter clipped off his right ear. It's Luke, the physician. That was Luke's specialty, doctor work. It's Luke who adds, Jesus touched his ear and healed him. It was left to Jesus to clean up the dirty work. Isn't it amazing? Jesus loved Peter, but Jesus loved Malchus. He's about to die on the cross for Malchus, not just Peter. He doesn't want to injure him now. You know, it's provocative that the last miracle of Jesus' earthly ministry was to heal a wound inflicted by one of his own disciples. And sadly, that's the same miracle that he's had to repeat over and over again for the last 2,000 years. Well-meaning saints like you and me take up a sword to fight and they forget their master took up a towel and a bowl to serve. Well, verse 11 tells us, Then Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Peter stands there holding a sword in his hand while Jesus is holding a cup in his hand. His cup is sloshing over with pain and rejection. He's about to drink it deeply. Peter, on the other hand, he knows nothing about the victories that are won through suffering. All he understands is blades and swords. That is until later. And it'll all make sense. And he'll write a letter called 1 Peter. And he'll talk about suffering and what God works through suffering. 
You know, it's been said, Peter fought the wrong enemy, used the wrong weapon, had the wrong motive, and accomplished the wrong result. Jesus didn't come to crush his enemies, but to love them and to die in their place. You know, Abraham Lincoln was the one who said, the only way to truly get rid of an enemy is to turn him into a friend. And this was Jesus' strategy. He loves his enemies. And he wants to turn them into friends. And this should also be our motive. Paul told the Corinthians, our weapons are not carnal, but they're spiritual. I talked to a lady this morning who who said she's fighting a battle and she wanted to know how to fight that battle. And I said, here's how you fight it. You you fight it through spiritual means, not physical means. You, You overcome evil with good. You rely on the power of prayer. You choose the right weapons. Later at Pentecost, Peter will put up his sword. He won't pull his sword that day. Instead, he'll pull out another sword. He'll pull out the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Peter will speak the truth in love, and he'll slay that day 3,000 souls. But he'll slay them of their stubbornness and sin, and he'll bring salvation to their hearts because he uses the right sword. Verse 12, then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. They cuffed him up. They plied the ball and chain. Isn't it amazing? Jesus came to set us free from the chains of sin and guilt and addiction and we said thanks to him by slapping a ball and chain around his ankle. Putting handcuffs on his arms and legs. Verse 13, and they led him away to Annas first for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. In a political maneuver, the Romans had stripped the office of high priest from Annas in around the year 15 AD, and they had made his son-in-law, a friend of Rome, Caiaphas, the acting head of Judaism. But Annas was still very powerful. He was sort of wielded his power behind the scenes, and so he was the first to interrogate Jesus. Jesus will actually be tried six times this night. Once before Annas, then before Caiaphas, then before the Sanhedrin or the Jewish Supreme Court, then before Pilate, then before Herod, then back before Pilate, three times in a religious court and three times in a civil court. Today in Jerusalem, you can visit the ruins of Caiaphas' house. And you can actually go and you can go to the dungeon and you can see the places where they hung the the chains and where they chained their prisoners. Obviously, Jesus was in this very place, in the same dungeon. This was where he was held that night. It's a very moving experience to be there. Now, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the reference that Caiaphas had made earlier. Earlier, you remember the accidental prophecy that he had spoken? Go back, read it in John 11, verse 50. Verse 15, and Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And the unnamed disciple here was probably John, the gospel's author. John's own humility, no doubt, refused to allow him to mention himself by name, and so he just called himself that other disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Evidently, John had some connections. Because of some relationship he had, 
either with the high priest or with maybe some family relative or somebody in Caiaphas' entourage. John got Peter and himself into the courtyard where they could actually watch the trial of Jesus. But it turned out to be a heartbreaking experience. Some scholars believe that this unnamed disciple could have been Nicodemus or maybe Joseph of Arimathea since both had connections with the Jewish hierarchy. To me, his relationship with Peter makes this other disciple more than likely John. Well, at first, Peter stood at the door outside. And then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. You remember earlier that night, Peter had promised Jesus that he would storm the gates to protect his Lord. Now he has to be led in by a, into the courtyard by a little servant girl. Well, then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter said, I am not. Peter... Strike one. And the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed this early spring in Jerusalem. The nights can get real chilly. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus, and now the, the scene shifts into the, actually into the house. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. I mean, Jesus didn't run some clandestine operation. All he had said and all that he had done had been open and had been public. I think it was Thomas Fuller who once said, Craft must have clothes, but truth loves to go naked. Truth has nothing to hide. The truth that Jesus taught, He laid out for everyone to scrutinize and analyze. On numerous occasions, the Jewish leaders sent delegations to listen to Jesus, to ask Him questions, to to investigate what He was teaching. I mean, by now, they're experts in what Jesus has done and what He said. They've got... Books, scrolls full of quotes that Jesus has made. What what, what do they mean by asking him these questions? They know the answers already. Verse 22. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? The high priest in Judaism was like the, the Jewish Pope. I mean, he had tremendous authority and supposedly a hotline to God. And whenever the high priest was addressed, it was usually done with a string of accolades and flatteries. Unlike everyone else, Jesus refuses to kiss up. He speaks bluntly. Jesus is unimpressed by credentials or by office or by some guy's reputation. My, my, compared to Jesus, the high priest and the pope, for that matter, are last string choir boys. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? 
And Jesus is here appealing to standard legal practices. In a Jewish trial, both sides were given the opportunity to present witnesses. And the fact here that Jesus is being accused without a single witness for either side taking the stand. I mean, this is a sure sign that that he's being railroaded here. That's what's happening. Jesus is asking for a fair trial. Annas, on the other hand, he ducks the matter completely. He passes the buck. We're told then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. In verse 25, the scene shifts again, this time back outside to the courtyard and to Peter. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Oh, Peter. Strike two. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Oh, no. Malchus has a cousin. (laughs) You never know. You know, a relative now with revenge on his mind. Maybe he has a sword, Peter's thinking. And this time, Jesus might not be around for reattachment. Peter panics all of a sudden. His faith is overwhelmed by his fear. And in verse 27, check this out. Peter then denied again. How many times now has he denied the Lord? Three strikes and you're out. And immediately, a rooster crowed. Did a hound dog this morning. I did a rooster tonight. How about that? A rooster crowed. One year we were in Israel and Kathy and I were, we were walking the uh, walls around Jerusalem. And just about dusk. We were over by the uh, Stephen's Gate, by the Temple Mount, and we heard a rooster. It's kind of cool to be in Jerusalem and hear a rooster, unless you're Peter. And she got her cell phone out, and she popped her cell phone open, and she did the recording, you know. So we recorded the rooster. And every now and then, I'll go back, and I'll listen to the rooster crow in Jerusalem. Really kind of haunting, knowing that, that Peter denied his Lord three times before the rooster had crowed twice. Thursday night... Mac and I, we were watching the evening news when we heard of the death of 96-year-old Kermit Tyler. Kermit Tyler was the Air Force pilot stationed at Pearl Harbor. Tyler was manning the radar on the morning of December the 7th, 1941. An arrival of a group of American B-17 bombers was scheduled that day, that morning. So when Tyler saw this huge blip on the radar screen, he turned and he commented to a co-worker, ah, don't worry about it. Oh my. Apparently he was new to his job and planes from San Diego were expected that morning. But of course the radar blip turned out to be the first wave of Japanese fighters and bombers. And the quote, don't worry about it, has gone down in infamy. When the news report was over, Max sort of turns to me and he says, Wow, how would you like to live with that mistake for the rest of your life? I said, Oh my, that would be tough. 
You know, I can think of only one failure that would be worse to have to live with. And that was Peter's denial of his Lord Jesus. Luke tells us after the rooster crowed, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. You know, in a sense, Peter's denial was not a lot different than Judas's betrayal. I think about this a lot. You know, we don't know what motivated Judas, but it's likely it wasn't fear. I mean, Peter proved a coward. Imagine the scar that Peter carried for the rest of his life. In fact, the guilt was so heavy, Judas couldn't bear it. He actually went out and hung himself. But the risen Lord Jesus will have mercy on Peter. And Peter will show heartfelt repentance. And Jesus will forgive him. And he will give him his peace. And Jesus will even recommission Peter. He'll say to him three times, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. It's interesting. Peter denied the Lord three times. Jesus recommissions him three times. Jesus is saying, Peter, I can restore you. I can, I can turn back the clock. I can undo what you've done. Isn't that wonderful? You know, he, he was restored to the point where now a rooster crow signals the dawning of a brand new day. I hope that's how Peter thought about it. Well, verse 28 tells us, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. The Latin word praetorium referred to the Roman headquarters in Jerusalem. It was located on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount platform. It was a military compound called the Fortress of Antonio. Do we have a picture of it? Listen. There we go. There's the Fortress of Antonio. You can see where it was strategically positioned there on the Temple Mount, it was right there, kind of the high ground on the north side where the soldiers could see what was going on there within the temple. If an uprising occurred among the Jews in Jerusalem, it would probably start in the temple. And this is why the Romans wanted a presence nearby to monitor what was happening and to keep troops prepared just in case. During the Passover, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, would journey from Jerusalem from his base of operations in Caesarea on the Mediterranean. He would come to Jerusalem, and apparently he would stay in the Antonio while he was in town. He would sleep there at night. Here Jesus is rising, arriving in the wee hours of the morning, and Pilate is already there. Now understand the Jews involved Pilate only because it was necessary to do so. The Jews and Pilate were sort of a marriage of convenience. For centuries, Jews had executed for capital crimes and for blasphemy themselves. It was death by stoning. But in 19 AD, the Romans stripped the Jews of their right to capital punishment. All executions now had to be carried out by Rome. Normally, the Jews hated Pilate, and Pilate hated the Jews... In fact, Pilate had zero respect for Jewish religion and tradition. He was very uncooperative, normally. In fact, the Jews had sent some formal complaints to the emperor in Rome. Pilate's job was to keep the peace and placate the, the Jews. And at this point, he was inclined to do for the Jews a favor and to accommodate their wishes. In other words, if they scratched his back, he'd scratch their back. He could keep his job and, and they would keep the peace. Well, they bring Jesus to Pilate, to the praetorium. 
But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. And here gives you a good idea what the Jews thought of the Romans. They were unclean Gentiles. They wouldn't even go into the same room with them, under the same roof with them. You know, Jews believed that sin was a communicable disease. Enter the house of a Gentile and you could get contaminated. They were especially cautious around Passover. Earlier that week, they had rid or purged their houses of leaven. You'll see this in the Passover Seder. We'll do it in a few weeks. An Orthodox Jew who entered a house that had not been purged would be excluded from celebrating the most important feast of the year. All this is kind of ironic to me. It didn't matter that they were about to kill the Son of God. But let's just not set foot in an unclean house. This was their, the level of their hypocrisy and how blind they were to the truth. Pilate then went out to them. And this Pilate is an interesting character study. You know, when the Roman governor crawled out of bed that morning... I mean, did he have any idea the enormous decision that he would face that day? What he thought was another day at the office turned out to be the most colossal day in human history. Can you imagine? You know, this happens at times to people. This can happen to you. It can happen to me. When we least expect it, we're suddenly presented with an enormous challenge or a life-changing opportunity. Sad to say, Pilate failed to rise to the challenge. His initial approach to the Jews was curt and formal and routine. He said, and he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Pilate soon discovers that there's nothing routine about this case at all. It's unlike any decision that he will ever have to make. His encounter with Jesus that Passover ended up shaping his life for both now and for eternity. When the Jews do respond, they don't really have an accusation. It's, it's interesting. They just try to intimidate the governor into doing their bidding. They answered and they said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. What do you mean? We don't need a reason for this. We, we brought him. We have our reasons. Do what we tell you to do. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. This was Governor Pilate's first attempt to pass the book. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put another to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. The Jews wanted an official sanction to their actions, so Jesus couldn't get off later on a technicality. In reality, though, Roman crucifixion was a fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus had said earlier in John, If I be lifted up, it was a reference to the crucifixion. Despite the Jewish tradition of execution by stoning, it's interesting that throughout the Old Testament, it's consistent with the prediction of the Messiah dying by hanging on a tree. In Psalm 22, David described Messiah's crucifixion a thousand years beforehand, before the Persians even invented crucifixion. And throughout the trial, the Jews and Pilate think they're calling the shots. In reality, they're all just pawns in God's plan. Verse 33 tells us, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, 
with a penetrating question that had to probe deep into his heart. He says, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Now, Pilate's a politician. In fact, he's a secular Roman. And he hates being pulled into religious disputes. You know, like people today, Pilate was one of those guys who just didn't want to think about spiritual things, spiritual issues. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And and this is such an important principle for us to grasp. The kingdom of God isn't a political entity. This is why it has no thrones or palaces or armies or even borders. It comes without pomp and circumstance. Jesus is king over a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. Thus, his kingdom operates according to spiritual principles. Its realm is the spiritual domain. Jesus' kingdom isn't about law and force and politics and power plays and taxation, the pillars of Rome, the things that Pilate understood. No, the modus operandi of the kingdom of God is love. Jesus is a king who gains by giving and who conquers by serving, and who seizes by sacrificing. Jesus' kingdom is based on truth, not brute force. Mercy rather than muscle. Forgiveness rather than resistance. Caesar was king of Rome, but Jesus is king of hearts. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? Here Pilate echoes the cynicism of Roman philosophers. You know, the Greeks and the Romans, they believed in the truth. They just disagreed as to what it was. You know, in contrast, today we have philosophers who deny that absolute truth even exists. We live today in a world full of facts. Surf the internet. You can Google and you can Yahoo and you can Bing. And you can click on information galore. Yet in the midst of all the facts and the information overload, we have lost sight of the truth. It's ironic. Pilate asked, what is truth? And he asks it to the only person who could ever solve the riddle. And yet he doesn't give Jesus even the opportunity to answer the question. Don't give up on the quest for truth until you've listened to the person with the answer to the question. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we're told, and when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Pilate sort of jerks away from Jesus as if he's afraid to to let him answer that question. What is truth? Francis Bacon said it this way. He wrote, What is truth? Said jesting Pilate, and would not stay for an answer. 
Pilate seems afraid of the truth. One author put it, the truth that makes men free is for the most part the truth which men prefer not to hear. That was Pilate. You know, place Pilate under a magnifying glass and his problem gets a little clearer. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. But for fear of the Jews, he refused to release him. The truth he did know, he lacked the courage to obey. And that's the secularist problem. That's the humanist problem today. It's not that truth doesn't exist. It does. But living the truth requires more courage than denying the truth. And that's why people would rather just, what is truth? Living it takes a lot more courage than denying it. In verse 39, Pilate remembers an old Jewish tradition. He says, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Now, Pilate is bothered by what he senses in Jesus. Matthew gives us an additional bit of information that Mrs. Pilate had been warned in a dream the night before not to condemn Jesus. Pilate must have, or or might have, not fully have understood Jesus' identity, but he did see enough in Jesus to know that, that this was no ordinary man. The governor had questioned the truth, yet while... He was with Jesus. He felt closer to the truth than he had ever felt before. Pilate knows that Jesus is not, certainly not deserving of death, and so he starts looking for a loophole, some way out of this, and he remembers his custom. There was this old agreement that allowed the Romans to appease the Jews at Passover by releasing to them a prisoner of their own choice. Now, Pilate still doesn't realize the political ploy that's being played on him. He expects the Jews to just accept Jesus' release, especially when given the alternative. For the other option he presents to them is a bandit, a bad guy named Barabbas. So Pilate asks the crowd, Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And he must have been shocked by the answer. Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. And the last line is what proves that hatred is truly illogical. Now, Barabbas was a a robber. I mean, all Jesus did was heal and help and love and deliver and stand for what's right. But Barabbas had broken all the rules. He had stole from the poor to spend on himself. He was an indiscriminate thief and bandit. Who in their right mind would release a Barabbas and keep Jesus in chains? Surely the Jews wouldn't want him on the streets. And yet the screaming crowd was not in their right mind. Hatred and jealousy were in control. Pilate had underestimated their madness. And chapter 18 closes, Barabbas gets a walk while Jesus is led away to be scourged and crucified. In one sense, it was the greatest travesty of justice there has ever been, and yet in another sense, justice is about to finally be served, for sin is about to be judged. And there we have chapter 18.